Dr. Michael Mastorino was a world-renowned oral surgeon and author of On Dental Implants. However, after some issues, he took another route and literally became a living Dr. Frankenstein, making his living off a scam that would literally steal body parts from the dead. That's what we're going to look at today on Thought Crime. Without permission or proper medical screening. But now, the ringleader of the scheme, Michael Mastro Marino, seen here in court earlier this year, has been sentenced to 18 to 54 years in prison. Three others who worked with him were also charged, and so were a number of funeral directors in several states. Prosecutors say the scheme dates back to 2001. They would, in conjunction with funeral directors, who would divert bodies that were either going to be buried or um, cremated to Mastro Marino. Mastro Marino would then uh, employ these various cutters, we call them, who would extract the bones from the body and other tissue, like tendons, etc., and uh, would then uh, sell those bones and tissue to a um, processing company down in Florida and other places in the South. The body parts were then sold around the country for dental implants, knee and hip replacements, and other procedures. In many instances, the missing body parts were replaced with PVC piping. Hey everyone, Keto Comic here. Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime. For those of you on BitChute, you may have noticed I finally changed my channel name from Keto Comic to Keto and Crime. So, welcome. Same same content, different channel name. Just making it match up with everything else. This is a very interesting case and one that I actually wish was not a thing and that it never happened because it really go, shows the depravity that a, the human animal is capable of when it comes to money. And if you have a weak stomach, if you are trying to eat while you're watching this, I highly recommend that you don't or pass on this video because just like uh, my story on tri-state crematory, this one involves descriptions of dead bodies and things that happen to dead bodies. And unless you can stomach that, I highly recommend you pass on that and do not try to eat while you're listening to this unless you just have the most iron of constitutions. And if you do, I want to meet you. So let's get started. The original, real Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Michael Master Marino. Also, for those of you watching on video, not in my normal setting. We are on the road to Memphis, Arkansas, which next week, if you remember my little posting on the community tab on uh, YouTube, we're going to be starting the West Memphis 3, and I'm in that very town where it happened, so I'm able to get a good prospect for that case. But I was here in a performing in a roast battle, which I came in third. I was very proud of that because I'm not normally a good roaster, but that will actually be up on a podcast uh, on the... Um, Sirius XM network next uh, next month and I'll be uh, happy to post a link to it when it's up so if you want to enjoy that but let's get into this case 
Dr. Masterman Marino was born September 16, 1963, in Brooklyn, New York. He grew up in Brooklyn, uh, definitely an upper-middle-class family, did very well in school, very well in high school, uh, wanted to go into the medical profession from an early age. And as a result, he was enrolled at the University of Pittsburgh for his undergraduate, where he excelled at his pre-med, pre-dental studies, and then attended the NYU College of Dentistry after that. While enrolled at the College of Dentistry in 1986, he went into a local Manhattan tanning salon where he met the young lady working there, a woman by the name of Barbara, and it was love at first sight. They were both dating other people at the time, but they said once they got to talking, and got to know each other, they realized this was the person they were going to spend the rest of their lives with. As a result, Dr. Master Marino went and told his current girlfriend that it was over because he had met the person he was going to marry, and when you know, you know. So, and it did turn out in 1988, he and Barbara were married. They went on to build a house in an affluent Manhattan suburb called Fort Lee, and went on to complete his residency in New York in oral surgery and went on to establish a very successful oral surgery practice in New York City. And for a long, long time, things were rosy. This was the perfect Barbie and Ken relationship. They had two sons and everything was going on swimmingly until 1998 when on vacation they were staying with Michael's parents in a hotel when Barbara was awakened in the middle of the night by Michael's mother saying she had found Michael passed out in their bathroom. They were sharing a suite, so two bedrooms, one bathroom. He, she had found Michael passed out with a needle in his arm in the bathroom. Barbara immediately got in and ran to check on her husband. He was groggy, but he was able to get up. He told her that he had taken some Demerol to deal with a back injury he had sustained while in dental school. He had slipped and fallen on one of the hard hallways and had injured his back and it had gotten aggravated because of all the surgeries he was doing. He had to stay in a hunched over position so it had aggravated the injury and he was experiencing a lot of pain so he had taken some Demerol so that he could sleep. And he's apologized to her profusely. He said, I accidentally took too much. I'm really sorry. I will go to the doctor and get some prescription medicine prescribed by an actual back doctor, and I'll get this taken care of. I'm really sorry that I scared you. I meant no harm. I was just trying to go to sleep. And she believed him, as you would. But she said after that, she started to look at him a little bit differently, and she started seeing signs that maybe he wasn't just using Demerol for back pain, maybe it was some other things, but, you know, she was a housewife, she had two small boys to raise, and she basically allowed him to kind of go on. Then in 1999, she received a call from his office from a co-worker that said they had found him passed out in the work bathroom. His pants around his ankles and a syringe in his arm and he had to be woken up and taken woken up given some coffee so that he could go in and perform surgery on a patient that was actually already under anesthesia waiting on him there's so many things wrong with that scenario I can't even begin to tell you okay first 
You got the doctor passed out in the bathroom from drugs. Then you have them waking him up, sobering him up with coffee, and taking him to go ahead and do oral surgery on somebody already under anesthesia. My best protocol would be to bring the person back up out of anesthesia, say the doctor is ill and will re have to reschedule your surgery. I don't get that. But it turns out that wasn't the only instance of this happening. He had actually fallen asleep during a couple of surgeries to have his medical assistant shake him awake and also had, due to a drug-induced stupor, had accidentally sliced one of the major nerves in the jaw of a patient that controlled the, the movement in the jaw muscle. So this person, even though they got a whole new smile from dental implants, woke up with a permanent droop on their face because he sliced their own nerve. And as a result, his practice was starting to get a lot of malpractice suits. So there was a lot of questioning going on, both at work and now by Barbara at home, that something was up with the good doctor. The doctor was also a world-renowned oral surgeon. I think that's why he wasn't held to greater scrutiny. He had already co-authored the book Smile about dental implants with another well-known surgeon, Dr. Michael R. Wyland. So this was a celebrity oral surgeon. Think of him as kind of like the Dr. Oz of oral surgeons. That's why I think he wasn't put under greater scrutiny. But this was in 1998. Then in 2000, Michael's co-workers had actually told Barbara that he had been seen out with a woman that wasn't her, and they suspected that maybe he wasn't being faithful to their marriage. Again, she just shook it off and, went and kind of went back to raising her sons. But then one night, Michael failed to come home. It was about two in the morning. She got up, realizing he wasn't there. She got both boys ready. She got put them in the car, and she drove out to see if she could find him. It didn't take her long. He was about two miles down the road from their Ford Lee estate. And she saw him on the side of the road in cuffs from two police officers. She then pulled up, screaming, Michael, Michael realized that of course he wasn't alone there was another woman in the car with him that was driving obviously intoxicated that was the woman michael had been having an affair with that woman was arrested for uh driving under the influence michael was taken in taken in for obvious public intoxication turned out to be from demerol from prescription drugs the state of new york's dental board suspended his dental license for two years. So he could not practice dentistry in the state of New York. And they actually told him that if he could sober up, get clarification and certification that he was better, that he could have his dental license back. So his wife and actually his practice put him into rehab. He came out, he did well for a couple of months, but then relapsed and that caused the dentistry board to completely take away his medical license, his dental license, never to be returned. So he basically lost his job, his practice, and his career. He They did manage to save their marriage, and he did take on a new career in 19, in 2000-2001 in the burgeoning transplant industry. This is when our ability to transplant organs to save others people's lives had gone well beyond blood transfusions, heart transplants, liver transplants, lung transplants, what have you, kidney transplants, the major organs, and was now 
branching off into skin and tissue, muscles, ligaments, tendons, bones, corneas, retinas, inner ear, anything that you can think of that we could harvest and transplant to make another human life better was starting to come in fruition during this time. And he actually got a job due to his medical contacts working for a tissue transplant company selling harvested human organs for legal transplant. And because of his contacts with New York City, he became a prime salesman in the state of New York, and he saw the potential to make a lot of money there. Most harvesting of organs takes place in hospitals, about 90% of it. The other 10% takes place in funeral homes. And he was dealing with the 90% that take place in hospitals, which are under severe scrutiny from transplant boards. And so there's not a lot of shenanigans that can go on there. However, he, with his eye, saw potential in the 10% that took place in funeral homes because there wasn't as much regulation there. Because when a person dies at home, they're taken directly to the funeral home rather than to the hospital. You die in the hospital, they're going to do your harvesting there before they even send you to the morgue. In a funeral home, if you die at home or in a nursing home or something like that, you're going to be taken immediately to a funeral home where you're, if you're a donor, your parts are going to be harvested and then you're going to be put through the embalming process. So he saw great potential for that 10% that was done in funeral homes. And he got an idea. He started his own tissue harvesting company based out of the Daniel George and Son Funeral Home in Bensonhurst area of Brooklyn, New York. He actually rented a room from them upstairs. He got it inspected as a medical office. And even though he had lost his medical license due to drug, drug abuse, he was able to get a license in 2002 to, for the legal medical trade of human organs and tissue. I still don't understand how that's possible, but he was able to do it. And he started his own harvest company because he was a surgeon. He knew exactly how to do it. So he would uh, work out of a room, basically a mini operating room with a medical table, medical lights, surgical equipment he had in this room. He would work exclusively with this first with this funeral home by himself, people that were Donors would come in. He would do the removal surgery upstairs himself. He would pack it sterilely, and he would then sell it to tissue companies like the ones he had sold for. They would buy it from him and then send it to hospitals and medical clinics all over the world. Now, one thing you have to remember about this, it is illegal in the United States to profit from the sale of human organs and tissues. If it was, we would probably see a whole lot more people waking up in grungy bathtubs and hotels with their ice down in an incision. So because, you remember that old urban legend? So it's not, you can't legally sell them, so to speak. But how all these companies get around it is they charge a handling fee. They don't actually sell the tissue or charge a handling fee for removing it and getting it to you. So that's how he got around this. He would basically pay Daniel George and Son Funeral Home $1,000 for, for a body. He would harvest as much from it as he could. At first, he did it legally. 
He would only take what was viable, what was ethical, and what had been agreed upon from their driver's license. Of course, when you sign on the back of your driver's license, you're legally saying that you can will allow them to harvest whatever is viable. So that's what he was doing. He was taking everything that was viable, and he was making about a four to five thousand, six thousand dollars per body after paying the funeral home a thousand dollars. That's a reasonable living. And it's an ethical living. However, he saw a potential to get rich. So, in 2003, he hired Beth Israel Surgical RN, Lee Cruchetta, and a couple of other nurses to help him with the extraction process. That is harvesting of the organs. These people had it down to a science. It usually takes a few hours to harvest skin to uh, harvest corneas, retinas, whatever you're going after. But he literally had these people, they, they had a carpentry precision with this stuff. And they could literally, this is where we get into the disgusting part of this video, video and or podcast. They could actually strip an entire body in less than an hour. Take everything. Now, as you can imagine, they weren't, where they were no longer doing it ethically. They were starting to ride along the that thin line between black market and legal, even though they were still only taking what is viable and what was agreed upon, they were doing it in a less careful way. They were basically mutilating the bodies. They would take the quickest way possible, pack it down, and get it out for the next body to come in. He also decided now that he had help that he didn't need to necessarily be there to supervise. So he started going out acting as the salesman and he struck up deals with many other funeral homes in the New York City area, paying them a thousand dollars per body. And of course, these funeral directors jumped all over it because it's extra money to do their harvests for them. So they would transport from other funeral homes to Daniel George and Son Funeral Home to that room upstairs where they would harvest the bodies. Then he got even more money hungry and less scrupulous. He realized that it doesn't matter what is ethical and what is agreed upon. Take everything. So he told them to start stripping everything that a medical tissue company would buy. Bones, tendons, ligaments, eyes, major organs, whatever they would take start harvesting it no matter what was wrong with the body now when you talk about what's ethical and what's agreed upon first of all if you're over the age of 65 your body is not supposed to be harvested because you're considered out of what is considered standard for being able to be a donor that is your body may not be in the best condition to support another person so you're not supposed to be harvested over the age of 65. also it matters what's on your death certificate. If you died from kidney failure, not supposed to take your kidneys. If you died from heart failure, not supposed to take your heart. If you had vision problems, not supposed to take anything related to the eyes. If you had cancer of any part of your body, those parts were not supposed to be harvested. And if certainly if you died of HIV related causes, nothing is supposed to be harvested. So keep that in mind. He started basically altering death certificates 
and or paperwork related to the death certificates to show that this person was a healthy person that just died of whatever an accident or whatever so that he could take anything he literally wanted so how how could he get by with this how could he take the bones of somebody that had bone cancer and and send them for transplant by altering the paperwork and also by replacing what he had taken out of the body with artificial means that is his people started replacing bones with PVC pipe and started stuffing the bodies with literal garbage, saline packed plastic bags, what have you, to make the bodies appear normal. Don't get me wrong, the use of PVC pipe to replace the bones of victims of accidents or other people that were mutilated prior to death that have to be made suitable for viewing is not unstandard in the death industry i'm just saying that they were using it for an unscrupulous method of hiding what they were doing just wanted to clarify that before they ship them back to their prospective funeral homes for burial internment or cremation bodies that were supposed to be cremated were literally stripped with no regards for anything and sent back scraps to the funeral home they were just burned at that point and the ashes given to the survivors if the person was supposed to have a wake or a open casket funeral that's the ones they would use things like pvc pipe and saline on to pump them up so that they would still look presentable in the coffin and then to overcome the medical testing that was often done on like the transplant tissue companies they would often test they wanted a vial of blood with the organs or whatever was harvested so they could test it for diseases they would actually save the blood from healthy corpses that didn't have cancer HIV what have you and they would send those blood samples with the bones and organs of people that were sick and should never have been harvested to begin with so he increased his profit from four to five thousand six thousand dollars a body up to about fifteen thousand dollars per body so he was making millions and he was paying his people well well into six figures so no one was saying anything they were just running along very happy until they made a mistake and they did something to a very high profile body they shouldn't have for those of you watching on video to my right you see a picture of alistair cook he was 95 years old when he passed away from lung cancer that metastasized to his bones he was a longtime bbc Pub national public radio and pbs narrator he ran the longest spoken word radio show in bbc history and npr history he also was the host of the classic pbs show masterpiece theater i'll insert a couple of clips here <laughs> Good evening, I'm Alistair Cook. Tonight we begin a new series called Poldark, which is based on four novels by Winston Graham and runs to 16 episodes. So I can only say that now is the time for the party to settle into a spate of dueling and loving and wenching and poaching and marrying, not to mention banking 
and copper mining. Copper mining plays a big part in this story because we are in Cornwall, the county of Cornwall in England at the end of the 18th century. He was 95 years old when he passed away from cancer and they harvested everything in this man's body. Like I said, he had lung cancer metastasized to his bones. They harvested his bones, something that never should have been done. And they returned to the funeral home. He died at home, so he was taken immediately to a funeral home, not a hospital. So they sent his stripped body back to the funeral home. And it was because somebody reported that they thought his body looked weird somebody that wasn't in on it at the funeral home he was at reported to the police that they thought something weird was going on a police detective came in and investigated it and started kind of investigating that what was going on at the daniel george and son funeral homes and it took several years but in 2005 alster cook's daughter susan kittredge actually received a phone call from a detective asking her if she was aware of what had happened to her father's body and he explained everything of course she was enraged also along this time people that received transplants from the tissue and the body parts that had come from biomedical tissue services were starting to get sick he had a 68-year-old woman that contracted syphilis because she received skin tissue from somebody that had, that had syphilis. You had people develop HIV because they had received tainted tissue and blood products from one of these, some of these bodies. You had people developing bone cancer because they had received limb transplants from cancer-ridden bones. This was... A pandemic going on in the New York area and it had gone well beyond New York by that time because these biomedical tissue companies sell to internationally as well so they started to investigate this funeral home very closely and it was at the time that Daniel George actually sold the funeral home to a, a woman who decided she was going to do a full inspection she went upstairs secretly to kind of inspect what was going on upstairs she said she walked in she was taken aback by what she saw there was one operating table in the middle of the room bright lights there were bodies everywhere now bear in mind bodies being prepared especially for transplant have to be kept refrigerated he and they can only be and they have to be harvested within 15 hours of death that's the standard there were bodies everywhere unrefrigerated they had been well out out well over 48 50 hours some up to 100 hours they had bodies piled out in hallways it was like tri-state crematory inside they had bodies everywhere waiting for harvest and they were literally stripping them down like carpenters it was basically to coin nancy grace who i don't like to coin nancy grace because i think she's kind of a bull in a china shop but she actually said human chop shop and I think it's pretty well a good description of what was going on. Well, of course, she was enraged. She immediately revoked their lease, shut them down, called the cops, and all of them were arrested shortly after that, even though they were cut loose on bond. And in 2006, 
The good doctor and his three assistants were all indicted for various crimes from fraud, wire fraud, mutilation of a human corpse, and many other things. Mo most of them pled guilty. Doctor did. The two, two sub-assistants did. Only R.N. Lee Crucetta pled not guilty because he said he was just following orders. That didn't work for the Nazis either, Lee. But, finally, June 27, 2008, all of them were sentenced to between 18 and 54 years in federal prison for their crimes. And in an ironic twist of fate, Dr. Michael Master Marino died of bone cancer, St. Luke's Hospital, July 7th, 2013. Karma's a bitch. And that's the story of biomedical tissue services, a story that I wish to make my heart of hearts wasn't a thing. Also, Barbara divorced Michael while he was in prison. Uh, it was a mutual thing, I think, to protect what assets. They also had to repay something like $413 million to their victims. They, of course, had all of their property seized and sold to make that happen. Uh, and in 2010, she actually went on Oprah and told her story. It's very interesting. You can find it here on YouTube. I highly recommend checking that out. But uh, that's the story. Another gritty one, y'all. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back soon. Thank you so much. Like, comment, share, subscribe. Keto Comic. Out.